Abba Father, thank you again for a day full of grace and kindness and the way you've allowed me to see your hand at work in our lives. Ask for wisdom as we dig into your word and understand how the book of Revelation applies to us today, the church, and, uh, and help us to rightly divide your word and to know uh, exactly what you intend for us today. Please, Lord, I thank you for all these people here. Bless them and pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's do this. Some of you, this is going to be your first time here, so what we want to do is uh, just orient and review the, from the first lecture, the first series, and then pop into the next one. So you're looking at uh, a geographical image of the seven churches. You see that it makes a circular uh, area there in Asia, and uh, these cities are all, all placed on made trade routes. There's nothing off the beaten path. You know, they're right along the main travel routes, okay? You get the port cities at Ephesus, and which is a major, major uh, city uh, with one of the, the, I think, the number one bank in the known world at the time in the banking industry was in Ephesus, a major city. Um, all right, so we covered last session who the author is regarding internal evidence. The author identifies himself as John. But that's all he says, just that it's John. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. And it's referenced uh, again three times there. So Justin Martyr, who was born 100 AD, died 165. In his writings, he states that the author is John, one of the apostles of Christ. And that's really early, early testimony when you get, as far as external evidence, that's really early. Justin Martyr is one of the first to write about this thing called a gospel and to get at that the four gospels are gospels. And it's really kind of fascinating what he writes about. Um, continuing, what about, how are we gonna date this epistle, or this, this uh, book? <clears throat> there we go. You have two dates, you have the early and the late date. The early date anchors, anchors the letter around Nero, the Neronian persecution, putting it around AD 65, AD 66 uh, is a likely date for the letter. Um, you, the, the numbers, you, you is using the principles of Jewish gematria, which is numerology, and how they calculate a letter and how it can represent be represented by a number, you can actually get 666, those numbers, 666, out of Nero's name, Nero the Caesar. And uh, a lot of interpreters who hold to the early date say, aha, those three numbers reflect Nero. And that's one of their arguments for it. You have a list of kings enumerated in, in Revelation 17. And some scholars say that's evidence for the early date. But there's some problems with it. You know, do you start with Julius or do you start with Augustus? Which one? And so the theory that you think you're using to prove the early date becomes very complicated. So now, most all scholars today uh, go with the late date. And the late date looks like this. Uh, this anchors the letter under the imperial rule of Domitian, or Domitian, if you want to hold true to the language. So one of the uh, leading church founders, Irenaeus of Lyons, he wrote and said, 
regarding the letter that almost in our day, towards the end of Domitian's reign, is when this was written. Okay, now that is that's really strong external evidence, and it does fit. Uh, Domitian was a brutal emperor uh, in in the typical form of a Roman emperor. But it's interesting, uh, persecution under Nero and Caligula were far more intense than under Domitian. But what Domitian really forced is that he would be worshipped. And guess what they want? he wanted everybody to call him? Lord and God. All right? So Domitian is known for that, even though the historical record, historical record really doesn't demonstrate intense persecution of Christians like Nero did. He did uh, force emperor worship, and he, and he did this. He wanted emperor worship prior to his death, not just after. And so that became a real problem, okay? Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who was discipled by John, reinforces this testimony. So that's really, really strong. When you say Polycarp, Irenaeus, you say Eusebius, who's the first church historian, and they're all pointing toward the late date. You know, that, that just carries a lot of weight, all right? So almost the entire scholarly community uh, really does tend to side with the late date. There are some that hold to the early date, though, okay? Um, all right, let's keep digging here. Uh, literary genre. Uh, genre is simply means how is it classified? What is it in terms of a literary work? you're in the line at Kroger waiting to check out and you see a copy of National Geographic or you see the British Medical Journal or you see a crossword puzzle or the National Enquirer, those are all different forms of writing or publications. And you know if you do manage to pick up the National Enquirer, you know right away that you're, you're reading what? Garbage, all right? You're reading this pretend gossip. It's pulp gossip is what it is. And it's designed to sell in a cheap, you know, pulp kind of news, gossipy newspaper thing. Now, if you're going to get down to truth and facts, what carries more weight? New England Journal of Medicine, you know, National Graphics, something like that. Uh, so you already know by the type of writing it is how to engage it. When you go to interpret scripture, it's really critical that you know what type of writing it is. And that lets you know how to engage the text. So what is it? Well, it's actually three forms of writing. It is literally an epistle. Just like Paul is saying to the Philippian church, dear Philippians, I'm writing to you pastors, you deacons, and you elders. Uh, I, I'm praying for you. I thank you for sharing the gospel with me. And it's like he's writing a personal letter to a friend. You get that feel, an epistle or a letter. But then you also get a prophecy, kind of like Isaiah, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. You get that in the writing. But then you also get this new, unusual kind of thing called an apocalypse. All right? An apocalyptic writing by its very nature, the genre, is intended to help comfort people who are suffering. That's why it's written, okay? The very purpose of the genre isn't to try to foretell what's gonna happen in 2019. That's not the purpose. It's written to people 
in time and space history who are suffering and need encouragement, all right? Which is interesting because for a lot of us, you don't read the book of Revelation for encouragement except maybe the last two chapters, you know, where it says there'll be no more tears and the city's glorious and a new heaven and new earth. We like that part. But we don't see comfort in, in the first 19 chapters, 18 chapters at all. They would. They would see it as a very comforting thing. We tend to not, okay? Because we don't have a mindset toward apocalyptic to understand why it's written. And because of that, <clears throat> when we read it, we think this is spooky kooky. And it really, really is odd and confusing and all these things. So... Uh, examples, there's uh, lots of examples even in Jewish writing, even in Isaiah and Daniel, Ezekiel, where there's apocalyptic kind of writing. In apocalypse, the word means what? Unveiling, uncover, to reveal. It even implies to explain, okay? All right, let's keep going here. So uh, we looked at this last Wednesday. This is the opening prescript to the epistle, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let me get my pen out here. This is the term. This is where we get our word apocalypse, okay? This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is what that means. Apocalypsis, Jesu Christu. Okay, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Very simple, rather straightforward. And uh, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place. Hmm. Now, are we going to anchor this in history? Is that a clue? If we're going to anchor this in epistle in history, what, is, what does that mean? These things are going to soon take place? On the time-space continuum, what does that point to? 2018? 2011, when... when Pastor Campings was prophesying the end of the world. What do you think he meant? At least, yeah, if not sooner. You know. When did Jesus say he was coming back? Do you remember Aaron? His perils, parables about, about women, caregiving women and having Lamps. What did he say to do? What did he say about the, 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 the business owner, the master that went on a journey? Keep watch because you don't know the time, but it might be quicker than you think. Yeah. So, so Jesus taught what's called eschatological urgency. Like he's coming back. In fact, they literally believed it was going to be in their lifetime. Okay. They really, really believed that. And you see it in the book of Acts when you have this this kind of radical, almost absurd generosity where people were liquidating all assets, all of it, giving it to the church to feed people and launch the mission. And then all of a sudden that stopped. They don't do that anymore because Christ didn't come back. It's like, we're waiting, we're still waiting. What are we going to do? You know, We're running out of resources. If all the rich give all the money, then eventually everybody's poor. It's not a sustainable way to manage the church. And so uh, they literally thought he was coming back any day now. You know, keep your eye on the sky kind of thing. So, and you get that feel that these things must soon take place. And we'll look at that in a little bit here. So, okay. 
So let's look at theories of interpretation. Before we do that, do you have any questions? What is this book? Well, it's both a letter. Real people are getting a letter from a real man. It's a letter. But it's prophecy. And it's also apocalypse. So it's all three genres blended into one book. Okay? The book of Revelation. Right? Uh, we cover the early date and the late date. Okay? There's some internal evidence that can point to the early date, such as Revelation 11, go measure the temple. It's hard to measure the temple if it's destroyed. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. So that seems to argue for an early date. Unless it's just one of those many symbols <laughs> and it's not real, it's a symbol, so you're not sure. But that's one of the bits of evidence that says, wow, it's got to be an early date. Then you have arguments for the late date. And that, that one document by Irenaeus who said it was right before our lifetime during the reign of Domitian. You know. So, does it have to be early or late? Does, does it essentially change the interpretation of the book? I don't think so. I don't think so. The core of it, no. There are some things it will affect, but, but nothing really structural changes uh, in, my, in my mind. All right. Okay. Let's talk about theories of interpretation. It's going to get a little thick. I want to make it as manageable as possible. You've got to get this. If you can get this, this is a major step forward in understanding Revelation. Okay. Now, what I want you to, to, to get in your mind is how do, you, how do you take all the message of Revelation, okay, which says there are, there are good people and there are bad people, and the bad people are abusing the good people, right? The church is being persecuted, and God is upset, and God is going to bring judgment on the earth, and eventually... The, the, really, the, the man of evil behind all the persecution is going to be exposed for who he is. There's going to be a fierce, wrathful judgment. God will one day call all into accountability. There's the judgment of the great white throne. Those who have died in the past or those who are still alive, the great quickening of the dead, and all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And there's going to be a book opened and... There's gonna, we're going to find out if your, land, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those that didn't have their name in the book are judged with hell. Those that are are given the gift of heaven. These big, big, big ideas, right? Big teachings. Uh, when, when, when God breaks into this new, new way of doing life, heaven collapses in on earth. The time, space, continuum shatters. Heaven and earth collapse. There's a new heaven and new earth, and Eden is restored. If you can blend heaven and blend the perfection of Eden prior to uh, Eve and Adam messing up, you get this new kingdom of God. It's incredible. All right? Now, if you can kind of get frame that in, the question is, how is that going to play out? We've got four options. You ready? Here we go. Option number one, preterism, preterism. It simply means everything's done. <laughs> it means it's in the past. The preteristic view means it's all in the past. Okay. In short, or, or to make it really simple, 
all the prophecies right up to the very last part, which talks about the new heaven, the new earth, all of that stuff before that, the preterstic view, is that it all happened by AD 70. Like all the prophecies, all the apocalyptic visions, the monsters, the scorpions, the, the moon turning to blood, the third of the sea being destroyed, all these radical symbols, all ha- it's already happened. And it happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, how's that for being historical in your thinking? That's the strictest historical interpretation of the letter. It all applies and only applies to around 33-ish, 35-ish AD to AD 70 when Vespasian moves in and levels Jerusalem, literally levels it. Not one stone is left upon another. Jerusalem is destroyed. Everything's burned. Temples burned. Gold is picked through. Spoils of war. Make sense? That's the preterist view. Okay. Uh, the preterist interpretation understands the apocalypse from the standpoint of its first century historical setting. Hmm. What did I read at the beginning prescript? I want you to tell these things that, that must come soon. Ooh, sounds almost like a preterist view there. Okay. John's purpose is to show his readers how God is about to bring judgment on that world that is opposing them, the Christians, and to deliver them into his eternal kingdom. Okay? Uh, again, that means all the major prophecies in the book were fulfilled by AD 70. Does that make sense? Kind of makes sense, Sarah? Got it? All right. There's problems with that view. All right? Here's some difficulties. It's problematic because Jesus didn't come back. <laughs> Whoops. That's like, like the one big, big ingredient. Had he done that, the preterist view would be, the, there's only be one view on the book of Revelation, but he didn't. Okay. By the way, in case you want to know why he didn't come back, uh, it is what is called Gentile inclusion. The longer he waits, the more I get to come in to his kingdom. It's actually an act of mercy, if that makes sense, okay? So that's a big problem. And yet, uh, Jerusalem did level in, in AD 70. Rome did fall, but it fell in 476. That's when Rome, finally, the beast was destroyed. But that's several hundred years later. So there's a problem with a preterist view, okay? The decisive victory portrayed in the latter chapters of the book was never achieved. So it's kind of, it's kind of a, it gets a problem. It's, and it's difficult to believe, I like this line, it's difficult to believe that John envisioned anything less than the complete overthrow of Satan. The great battle between good and evil, God and Satan, uh, literally comes to a close. The final destruction of evil and the eternal reign of God. Well, you can't really get that out of Jerusalem being destroyed by 87. You know, John, it just doesn't fit. Okay, that's one view. Do any, do any of you like that view? Has value? I'm not sure. What are the other three? <laughs> You're dying to know, I know. The historical view, all right? This is historicism. And you're going you're gonna to relate to this. In this view, which made pot, was made popular in the Middle Ages, they went, some, some dudes said, like, wow, this is kind of like 
a timeline of the church. And they started going, oh, the churches in chapter 2 and 3 are ages, the seven eight church ages. And you have the Laodicean age of the church in that time in history, in the, the Pergamum period of history. And they started making this, they took Revelation and they spread it out over a thin line and they tried to, to take it right from their time uh, or, or right up to their time. Right, and the the reformers loved it because you know what they get to call the uh, the, the the beast. You know that the antichrist is it's the pope. It was it, boy, the reformers loved this idea, and they were able to work it, manipulate the timeline, and they go, oh, oh, so the locusts coming from the bottomless pit. Those are the Islamic invaders that came in to attack Jerusalem. That's what they are. Does it make sense? And they just chopped it up and spread it over the timeline, and that's called the, historic, the historicism view, right? Are there problems with that view? It's awfully subjective, isn't it? That was the Middle Ages. I'd say it's a few hundred years later. <laughs> do, we, do, you, do you reshuffle the deck and spread it out again and try to work it into our stuff so that we can say, oh, well, clearly the Antichrist is Barack Obama. Clearly. Or, no, 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 it's Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, he's, what he does with Twitter, Twitter, it has to be the Antichrist, you know. Just look at Twitter, it's got to be the Antichrist, yeah. 666, all over Twitter, you know. And some guy figures out that Twitter spells 666 somehow or something, you know. Yeah, that's kind of what you're doing. It's like you're, you're trying to create a problem. And you're trying to take a chunk of the book and drop it where you think it belongs. That's really subjective. It's a little willy-nilly to do that, right? Uh, it is antecedently, which means the stuff beforehand, doubtful that the Spirit of God would be that concerned when the immediate apostolic church is being persecuted that, that John is trying to write for something that's going to happen with the Islamic invader, invaders coming in when they didn't even exist. It's just kind of a doubtful position, right? You okay? You still with me? Do we need to stand up and do calisthenics or something? Or? All right, all right, all right. Third one, futurism, Okay. Uh, this literally means everything in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 forward is going to happen right at the last days, the last stage of human history. There will be a tribulation period. Ooh, we said the word tribulation, okay? And a lot of futurists think the church is going to be raptured out before that. But a real seven-year seven year period of tribulation, the last half being more intense time, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. And um, immediately after that, there'll be the return of Christ, the advent of God's kingdom, the last judgment, Christ will reign. And it's the stuff that you hear a lot about. You hear a lot of the futurist position, okay? Problems, the major weakness with this position is it moves everything toward the end of the timeline, where the, the Predator's view says everything's at the beginning of the timeline. This drops everything at the end of the timeline. Does that make sense? And the historical position, just spread it out <laughs> and just let it play out in bad. Well, Hitler has to be a part of the tribulation, right? Just line it all out that way, okay? So preterism, drop all this stuff at the beginning of the historical timeline. Futurism, drop it all at the end of the timeline. 
the historical positions, spread it out. Wherever you think the bad guys are, call them Antichrist and, and you get it. All right? The fourth position is it blows that up. There's no real historical timeline. It doesn't belong at the end. It doesn't belong at the beginning. It doesn't belong in the middle. These are just ideals. In a general way, this is just great principles about how God deals with evil. God blesses good. God punishes evil. There's always going to be anti-God people in every culture at all times, and God is still sovereign, and, and he made everything right in his son, Jesus Christ. So the party's over. Eat, drink, be merry. Live your life. Follow Jesus. Uh, try to win people to Christ, and you die, and you go to heaven. The idealist view. Does it make sense? Now, take out your papers. <laughs> Is that the one you like? <laughs> you, uh, uh, take out your test papers, pencils only. Do not, don't just spread out. You ready for the test? Um, it, yeah, thank you. It denies that the book has any addresses any historical purpose at all. Oh, I'm sorry. The one back. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, the position it leaves the book without any particular significance for those who it's addressed. In other words, it's taking everything and dropping it to the end of the timeline, which makes no sense because John is writing to seven real churches. So, like, what? You can't do that. That doesn't make sense. We got to go to the preter. We got to lean toward the preterism to do that. Makes sense, okay? And then the last one, idealism, is that it's just nothing. <laughs> it's just there's no historical significance to the letter at all. It's just like a sermon, and using symbolic language to teach good, you know, good principles. Okay, pop quiz. Here we go. Ready? Everybody, muscle in. It's going to count. When you read Revelation 1, 17 to 20, you read these words. John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Which one? Which theory of interpretation would you embrace to explain that little paragraph in chapter one? The preterist view, the historical view, the futurism view, or the idealistic view? Let me help you and give you that. Intended audience. So there's something about the preterist view that kind of 
yeah, that kind of makes sense. This is a real person, right? They're real people. That real persecution. This isn't symbol and fairy tale. It's bad. It's bad to be a Christian living in this culture. Andrew? I just don't think there's a need to ex- I don't think there's a need to exclude worldviews. You just it's just so much bigger than we are. And so you, you look at it and you you can see it for all three or all four at, at the same time. You just kinda and you just take it in bit by bit. It's just too it's just too big of a feast. It's big, Andrew. It's just too big of a feast to all take yeah. in. And the way most of us interpret it is to say, well, I can deal with Revelation 21 and the rest of it I am not going to read ever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. David? I see it as all four, really. Okay. I see it as all four. You're such a liberal. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, it, liberal. Is, it is like everything all encompassed into one, one letter. Yeah. You know, it's dealing with the present <clears throat> It's showing the future of what will be, what will come to pass, what will be in heaven. Uh, it's also the idealism of time is quick; time's going by quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, it's a historical <coughs> part of here. You, you know, that, just like what we studied in the beginning there. Mm-hmm. What was happening during that time? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's all of those. Yeah, mind. that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? What position do you think? best accounts for how we can understand the letter of Revelation. I think if you're just dealing with 17 through 20, maybe preterism or because they're speaking of things that are actually they're talking about the churches, who he is in the moment, who Jesus is. Right. Well, for example, Stephen, but look at the tenses. Okay, I want you to write the things which you have seen. Is that past, present, or future? That's past. And the things which are present, and then the things which shall be, or shall take place in the future. Interesting. So we're, we're, we're spanning some, some time here. But how much time in the future? As in, that shall take place after these things, meaning before eighty seventy. If you do that, what did you just embrace? The early date or the late date? You went early. You have to go early. So the date matters, okay? Or does it mean 476 when Rome falls? Or does it mean we have no idea, as Andrea is alluding to? This is bigger than we are. And if Christ decides to come back in, you know, December 2019, or he comes back in 3519, it's still perfect timing these things that will come to pass. Okay. I think it's a mix. Like 19, I think, talks more about with that in mind, futurism, having the mindset that it could be at any <clears throat> It could, you know, having the preterist mindset of them at that time thinking it could happen today yeah. and having that urgency. But then verse 20 talks about things that he saw as a metaphor, which is idealism. Well, and this is why it's hard. And, and again, we don't have that apocalyptic brain. If we did, we'd go, I know exactly what you're talking about. So if, how do we handle symbolism here? Great question. For example, who would the potential seven stars of these seven churches be? You've got stars and lampstands. They have something to do with the seven churches. It's possible that the star is the pastor and the lampstand is the church, that that's the interpretation. 
Well, it's, it's possible. That's what it says. The lampstand is a church. What? Say that again, my friend. You're doing so well. You're doing so well. You're a U.S. citizen now. You can do this. That doesn't help to Yeah, no. no pressure. No pressure. When I see church. When you see the church. Okay. For me, church has different personality. Yes. 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 You see uh, people talking about Bible, but they don't walk in truth. Mm-hmm. So for me, these seven shoes represent how the shoes is the personality of the shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Yes, yes. And that you're moving toward one of these interpretations of these churches representing a kind of personality for good or for bad. You know, the Laodicean church is a church that's in some pretty serious trouble. So, Darren? But, you know, you're you're looking at Revelation, yes. But there's also already prophetic uh, Old Testament scripture that still hasn't happened. A lot. And there's still New Testament stuff that was mentioned as well, like Jesus coming on the clouds. I think that was in Matthew or something like that. It still hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yes, yes. Has anyone studied this, and do you recall what position they take? I don't know, Madison, any of you guys? Darren, do you, do you know you've covered I it really before? I have looked at it this, this way. Okay, okay, okay. Anybody? Anybody else on how to interpret this? Anybody? I, I just want to say that when I read this, there's not anything in it that makes me think that the writer understood it all that well. He's reporting. He's there's there is this sense of this is this mystery, <clears throat> and I know I have to write it to you all. But there's not the sense that this is a teacher teaching. This is what this is about. It's not like when Jesus would give the parables, and then later somebody would come to him and say, "Okay, now tell us what it means." There's so why. What if he's saying, I'm a brother and I'm your partner, and this is the vision that I've had, and I'm sharing it with you because you also have the light. You're stars. You're the lampstand because he doesn't exactly know what it means either. Yeah, that is one of the perspectives 
on how did he get these visions and, and did he even understand what was happening to him. So, Anybody else on this? This is a big deal. Do you realize that the position you take here affects the entire letter? Make sense? Let's, let's, do, let's work a little more here, okay? Look at chapter 8, 10 to 13. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, <clears throat> and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it. It's a lot of threes. And the night in the same way, then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven. There's layers. Saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, another three. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. That's a lot of threes. So if you had to grab a particular theory to try to get your mind, and again, we are not first century people with a Jewish mindset uh, or Gentiles have been born again and brought into some of this teaching. It's hard for us to make that leap. Um, uh, Ryan, when you're in Germany, when you're in a different culture? Yes. Yeah, very different, wasn't it? Have you been over to the sandbox in uh, Afghanistan? Okay, right, right. You feel like you're an alien. It's a foreign world, foreign land. The geography is different. The language. Okay, this is what's going on. We're, we're the foreigners. This is very, very different. They wouldn't be upset at that. John would be, and his followers would be very comfort. They would be comforted by this. Not upset at it. We look at it, we're scratching our heads. So, what do you think? If you had to pick one that says, I think this gets at it, what would you say? What did the first two angels do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and by the way, I just grabbed a snippet because there's just not a lot of space here. I mean, it is thick with symbolism here. We're at the heart of some of this really amazing stuff. So what do you think? Do you think preterism explains that? Idealism? Has the, has the moon turned to blood that you know of? I mean, really turned to blood. No, no, we have blood moons, but that's not what it means. You know, so, yeah, exactly, Philip. Yeah. Someone else? What do you think? Hosea. Yeah, Hosea, that's right. Man, Gomer. Like Job, and you see like his struggle 
You know, I mean, God knew that there was this book going to be written that was going to symbolize so much yeah. throughout for Israel, yeah. and just so much about how there was this multi-layer symbolism and ideas. And to me, I, I would think there's so much of this that could be that. Yeah. You know, that it could yeah. represent different things that has been in his character all along. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, there's a lot of threes there. Yeah. So now, do you grant you go in your toolbox and you grab the tool called gematria or numerology, and you start to look at numbers and what they potentially mean? Why there's so many thirds, lots of thirds, and the use of the triplet. Whoa, whoa, whoa! By the way, in Hebrew, that's an Aramaic expression, Hebrew expression that means this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Or something awful's about to happen, something awful's about to happen, something awful's about to happen. That's what woe would mean in their culture, okay? How about this one? Chapter 12. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Wow. <laughs> What's that? Anybody, you've, you've gone through the letter and you've got, you've got some traction here? Would you say that is preterism? Does, do you hear an echo? Does anybody hear an echo in the Gospels on that story about the dragon and a woman giving birth? Is there an echo? Did Herod try to kill a baby boy? Did that baby boy get rescued and parents were swept away to a place called Egypt for a while? Is that what this is? If it is, we just went to preterism. Make sense? Do you see the challenge here? Madison, what do you think? I think a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we kind of already mentioned that there is a lot going on. There's a lot. Very good. And that we're just missing a few pieces. Sure. I think um, that this shows an echo of the gospel, which has already happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th that's just a problem that we run in. But um, I think that that's something that we're supposed to work out. Yes.
John, even though John is this reporter, what is God um, telling and showing John that God wants us to know mm. and that we're supposed to understand? Because I, I also see symbolism in this, too, where um, we were talking about, uh, I think Midget was parables. Well, if God is the one reporting this to John and telling John this and showing John this, what what about the option of it is a parable in a certain way. It's just disguised. Um, it's a lesson that we are supposed to be learning for something that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, in my mind, I'm like, I can't pick one. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it's just, I think it, it would be wrong for us just to yeah. say it is this exact thing. Yes. Yeah. Say this is what God is. Yeah, I find preterism and futurism to be most attractive. I'm most inclined with those two. I do see some value in the historical position, and I see some value in the idealism position, sure. I see value in all four, but I, I definitely would, if, you're gonna, if you wanna know where I stand, I'm an eclectic, and I put preterism and futurism together. If you wanna label, I'm a preteristic futurist. That's how I see this. I blend those two. And I thank one of my professors who taught me much, the great scholar George Eldon Ladd, is the guy that really, really um, developed that argument. Um, let's, let's do this. this. This will be a bit encouraging, I hope. All right. Uh, I want you to appreciate something here. Look at this. Uh, verse, verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For again, look at that. The time is near. And goose. There's pressure. Now, leaning toward preterism on there. That Boy, this is happening quick. Get ready. But notice, reading, hearing, and doing are the key concept that associates with the idea of being blessed. That word, here's the word, makarios. That is the very word that is featured in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the hungry and the thirsty. Blessed are those who appreciate. It's makarios, makarios, makarios. The same word. Blessed are those who read this. By the way, Terry, that's unusual, isn't it, to say someone's going to read this thing? Why? They didn't read. So that's really interesting. So it's fascinating that this is a reference, Terry, that this letter will possibly be presented to people in great authority or the social elite who could read. This is something that social elite people can get. Blessed are those who hear (laughs) the commoner who can't read. In poor in the poor regions of the area, five percent might be literate. In the urban areas, maybe up to fifteen to twenty percent could read. But the general masses they didn't read at all. But regardless, if you read it or hear it, you have to heed it. Read it, heed it, hear it, heed it. And when that happens, you're blessed. And this is, this is some of the only, you get this language here that's very unique, that there's a blessing when you read or hear this book. 
And we're going like, no, it's too complicated. It's too scary, and I don't get it. And we go, how can you be blessed by reading this? And yet, it's, this is some of the most unique stuff in the whole book, that there is a blessing attached to somebody who reads it and hears it and heeds it. Which means, you're right, Madison, we've got to read it and we've got to work it out. And that's hard. It's hard, and yet that's why you're here. Okay. Someone, final comments, uh, questions, pulling it into our world today. What are your thoughts? This could just be a shot in the dark, but I've heard a lot of people that I respect and, and trust and you know, spiritual things, and a lot of people in general say, you're either in a storm, you just got out of one, or you're about to go into one. And you look at Judges, and you see Israel either just getting out of being captive, about to go into being captive, or being captive. And you see that that's cyclical over and over and over through with God's people throughout Scripture. And a lot of those principles are in Revelations. Could it, in a sense, be that we should always be expecting it because we're in this cycle Yes. Every generation is waiting. Yeah. That's very insightful. Now, that's a bit idealistic of you. <laughs> but here you go. There's something in that position. You're like, well, that makes sense. It's, isn't it kind of teaching the church on how to handle persecution? Is that a principle? Is that a moral value, a spiritual value? And do all Christians in all cultures at all times potentially deal with this? Yes. So it teaches us how to handle opposition and at times, very, very hostile environments. Yeah. So there is some idealistic things, some principles that teach us how to do life in very difficult situations. Revelation 12, 11 says that blessed are those who, keep, who, who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They're, they're white. They're bathed clean. And these unique people who do that, it's just they do not love their lives even unto death absolute total surrender to Jesus Christ which is the core of the message Andrew I, I wonder if there's something about sitting before before something like this that is so vast and so hard to understand and to sit in front of it with humility and it's it's the same thing that happens when when a person sits in front of the Beatitudes, which truly, as you just read through it lexically, like it doesn't make sense. You Backwards. Know what I'm like you have to really sit in front of it for a long time, and then you really have to have a lot of help from other people mm. Mm -hmm. to get blessed by the Beatitudes because it's too hard to understand. And so yeah, it's all backwards. Those who sat are who are right. sad are somehow and happy. So, and so yeah. now we have this whole big gigantic letter and prophecy in apocalypse that's very hard to understand so it's easy easy to dismiss mm -hmm. what hap but you're blessed if you can yes yes sit in the mystery of it yeah. something that i have found interesting andrea through the years is how and i'm just going to generalize to make the point okay <coughs> using rhetoric that the average church member sees church, uh, Christianity and their faith as rather boring, predictable things. 
okay, let's go up and, and let's get ready to announce. I'll go to church. And you get in the car and you try not to fight on the way to church. And you get to church and you're like, hi, brother. Good to see you, sister. And we do the church thing. And there's some songs and some hymns. And you hope there's no typo in the PowerPoint because that just ruins the Holy Spirit flees when there's a typo. It's so frustrating. But you make it through the, the, the PowerPoint. And the preacher gives a sermon. And it's like, well, it kind of sounds like the same stuff he always says. But okay, you know, we did it. And you shake hands and you say, nice, nice job, pastor. Nice job, preacher. And you, and you walk out and, and, you're, and you're done. And you go like, this is a total yawn. It's like, it's like we're in this gerbil squirrel cage thing. Okay. I dare you to read Revelation. <laughs> See how boring it gets. Really get your mind and your heart into the depths of Christianity and how you would handle it if you lived in a persecuted culture. So, uh, us folk and our first world problems, we might have a hard time reading Revelation. Can you imagine if you were Ozzy Abibi, who finally got released what, after six and a half years in the Pakistani jail? and she and her family were uh, allowed to seek asylum in Canada. Do you think if she read this, what she would think about it? Or some of the people who are living in the threat of Boko Haram in Sudan and, and those in Eritrea and all these places? They'd go like, oh, my favorite book. I, 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 I love Jesus. He draws me to Revelation. It's beautiful. I see my Savior on every page. You know, I love the Revelation. I love the apocalypse. It gives me faith, you know. But us and our first world problems, you know. It's not the moon that turns to blood. It's those stupid red lights. Now that, oh, that's apocalyptic when you're in a hurry, you know, in our first world problems. So. Chris, I see a consistent uh, character of Christ to care for his people, those who are, that he's encouraging them even while he was on the earth call to action to hear his words that give life. If, if you hear those words and you obey them, you're like a wise man who yeah. built his house on the rock. Yeah. Um, versus the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And so his words give life, and there's there's not just blessing, but you are wise if you heed those words. And it's all in the midst of prepping them for persecution and in the midst of persecution. So he cares yeah. for his people and wants them to endure. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, Stephen, uh, the, the, and this is an unusual blessing tag onto this letter, okay? It's so serious that toward the end of the letter, he warns anybody who adds to or takes away from the, this letter of prophecy. Can't do it. This is serious stuff. Make sense? You, can, you don't mess with it. You don't chop it up and make it say what you want it to say and get rid of the parts you don't like and grab the parts you do like. You can't add to or take away from the letter, from the words in this prophecy. And if you read it and you hear it and you heed it, there is makarios. There's blessing when you do that, okay? So your homework assignment is to try to sit down and read Revelation, Okay? And I'm going to ask you to try to read it in one single setting. I know that might, if you're used to a one-verse quiet time, that's going to be overwhelming. I get it. But I'm telling you, just read it and just read the flow. Just read the flow of it. Don't stop and go, what does that mean? Just keep reading. 
learn, see, fly up and see the big picture. Just read through it. Get the flow of the letter, and, and you're going to see some things that are really fascinating. Um, and so I'm excited about it, really excited. I want to pray and bless you, and we're going to get ready to take the Lord's Supper. Abba Father, thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Thank you for giving us a vision of your son Jesus. Descriptions, his, his face is bright like the sun. He's standing in authority. His words are like a sword. Abba Father, thank you for giving us a glimpse of your son's glory, what he looks like. Pray that you'd give us uh, a fresh sense of spiritual vision, spiritual hearing, so that we can be the ones who read and the ones who hear and the ones who heed the teaching in this book. Thank you so much. Uh, Abba Father, to take the cup and the bread is another way of just opening this love letter you give us. Thank you so much. I love you in Jesus' name, amen.